Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. He kōna e pūrangi tēnei nā te reo irirangi o Aotearoa. Genomic technology has rapidly accelerated over the past decade, and even in the last few years, it's completely revolutionized genomics. I mean, never before has real-time genomics been integrated at the level as it is at the moment with disease outbreak. We undertook what is called genome sequencing of the positive case we have. And I think it's fair to say that genomics has played this kind of starring role in, um, in this pandemic. Kia ora, hello and welcome to Our Changing World. Ko Clerk and Cameron Thene. Dr. Gemma Geegan is an evolutionary biologist and virologist whose research at the University of Otago involves using genomics to look at the evolution of viruses. Her lab's work was the focus of a previous Our Changing World episode called Investigating the Virosphere. But across the last few years, she's also been working with ESR, the Institute of Environmental Science and Research, on sequencing of the SARS-CoV-2 virus to help New Zealand's COVID-19 pandemic response. Well, scientists are analysing the genome sequence of the four positive COVID cases at the centre of the current community outbreak. A response that's been part of a worldwide paradigm shift in using genome sequencing during disease outbreaks. Just sort of days after the first cases that were noted in um, Wuhan Central Hospital, just days afterwards, you know, there was uh, the first coronavirus genome was publicly shared on Twitter, actually. (laughs) And that very genome that was shared so early in the pandemic and early January 2020 um, was the blueprint for, you know, the vaccines that we have today. And also the diagnostic tests um, were all based on that, that first genome. DNA or RNA, the genetic material in a living thing, can be thought of as long strings of four letters. It's the number and sequence of these letters that makes every living thing on Earth different. Genetic sequencing is essentially reading these letters. Since the first cases, there's been over 9 million genome sequences of this new coronavirus shared online. And some of these have come from Aotearoa, New Zealand. From the work of Gemma and her colleagues, including Dr. Jop de Ligt, the lead at Bioinformatics and Genomics at ESR. When this pandemic came about, we really wanted to take a, a good look at what could this look like, because historically, when there was a virus or a bacteria, uh, it would be sent to a lab, they would culture it, and then a genome might be generated. And retrospectively, we would look at what had happened. But what we'd seen is that because of these disruptive technologies, people were taking this into the regions where those outbreaks were happening. So with Zika and Ebola, there were researchers that were taking these, these kits into the field uh, in Africa and in South America. And they were empowering their local communities to start generating that data and start answering some of those questions like, did it come from a bat or did it come from somewhere else? How is it spreading? The potential to use this technology to address problems in real time was there. 
So, when a new disease outbreak kicked off... Scientists in China are trying to determine if a new virus strain is responsible for an ammonia outbreak in the city of Wuhan. Tonight, the CDC is confirming the first case in the U.S. of a new and deadly coronavirus. The World Health Organization has officially called it COVID-19. We thought, well, this is an opportunity for us to do this on a, on a global scale. But that means that every country has to, to pick it up and to, to, to take this seriously. They reached out to researchers in the United Kingdom who had rapidly developed a protocol on how to sequence the virus from a patient sample. So they very kindly sent us those reagents, which meant that when the first COVID case came into New Zealand, within two days, we, we knew what sort of variant it was. And we actually uh, were able to collaborate with some people in Australia and Canada who are doing similar things to write up a, a tiny little story about what was happening in the Middle East, where the traveler had come from. And from there, we, we really started advocating, like, we need to do this for every single case, if we can, if we want to take action. But this approach was brand new. That wasn't necessarily the New Zealand system or, or any country's system. Typically, what happens is that a, a small set um, gets referred for these types of purposes. It was not the norm to be doing all of these things. So we had to work with, with the ministry and with the diagnostic labs. And, and actually, there was a lot of logistics involved in actually sorting that out to get to the point where in that first outbreak, we managed to do about half of those cases. And we were able to provide some intelligence about whether something was linked to a known outbreak or if it was uh, those cases of undetected community spread. And really from there, we were able to make that case like this is used for information that we're generating in a timeline that can be used for decision making. And that's when it really started becoming part of the system. Director General of Health Ashley Bloomfield says genomic testing returned overnight confirms that New Zealand's latest COVID-19 case came from within a managed isolation facility. And it was really interesting to see how it was then starting to be picked up in policy where because we were able to, within a day or two at most, say whether a case was linked to an outbreak or not, they could actually start preventing lockdowns. Um, so people might remember that at one point uh, there were quite some cases in Auckland that had come through the border, and all of a sudden we had a case in Wellington. And there was a question like, does Wellington need to go into lockdown or not? Uh, because they weren't sure if, if that case was linked to the local community or to that um, small cluster uh, up in Auckland. Um, and that was one of those cases where you don't work throughout the night and, and get a, an answer because there's, there's all kinds of people asking. Um, and you can say to them, no, we are, we are sure that this is actually linked um, to those Auckland cases because the genomes tell us that. We can see that this is the only place where it could have come from. And therefore, they can take much more restricted ring-fenced measures and didn't have to put Wellington into a lockdown. And those are the kind of things that you, you don't necessarily anticipate, but you hope for in terms of when you start that piece of work, when you start your thinking, is that that's, that's where you hope you ended up. And, and it's been really um, yeah, rewarding um, to, to see that happen and to actually see the science shining through in that way. It strikes me that all of a sudden it's a very real-time, practical, pressing, you know, piece of work that you're doing. And you say, like, working through the night and then politicians are making decisions that are going to impact hundreds of thousands of people's lives as a result. Yeah, it's been uh, it's been quite scary at times. Uh, Do you prepare <laughs> very carefully? 
Yeah, so so just as a disclaimer, I'm I'm not the one doing the pipetting. I'm I'm the one that that looks at the data and then has to write the report that then gets signed off uh, as being the official verdict. But um, there there were moments where people said like we need this answer sooner, and well and and we had to tell them like well that means that we will take some shortcuts in the lab, which means that it could be there or we could get nothing. So if you really want it, that's that's what we can offer you, uh, which is. Yeah, it's, as a scientist, it's it's quite scary in the sense that you would normally just want to do your protocol that you've set and that you know that's going to yield a result. But if it's going to be too late, what is that result worth, right? So it's it's really an interesting change of dynamic. The extent to which genome sequencing was used here put Aotearoa in a situation different to most other countries. We were in that quite unique position where we had a genome for almost every single case. And that means that you can do something quite unique. That means that you can start excluding certain scenarios because if there is a hole in your data, you can never be sure if it is because of that hole in the data or because of the explanation that you're finding. So for example, we often got the question, where did it come from? Did it come through the border or did it come from the community? If you are missing 10 or 20% of your community, you can be less certain about if it came from there or not. Whereas if you have 99% of all your community cases done, you can be a lot more certain. And you can make those claims like, we think it is from the border. Remember all that PCR testing if you'd been somewhere that there were cases or if you'd had symptoms? The queues in the strange sterile setups and halls with kind nurses wielding swabs. Positive samples would arrive to ESR, to Europe's colleagues. And remember those 1 pm briefings? An additional case that was reported yesterday as a household contact is now being classified as under investigation, and genome sequencing is underway on that case. But not only did this approach help guide decisions here, it also allowed interesting studies into how SARS CoV 2 worked, which added to global knowledge of the virus we could do some fairly unique studies of actually showing airborne transmission during flights and in quarantine facilities. And they were the type of studies that were quite important to the recognition of the airborne nature of the virus because there was very strong epidemiological data coming out from different countries. But you can never be 100% sure that you have the complete epidemiological picture because you're dealing with people. People forget, people move about, all those other things that, that make life worth living make that conclusion harder. Having all these sequences meant that they could link cases together using the similarities and differences in the genome, essentially drawing up virus family trees. Virologist Dr. Gemma Geegan talked me through one important example that helped confirm that the virus does in fact spread through the air. For a long time, it was argued that this virus is too large to be um, airborne and it has to be transmitted through droplets. And so that's why there was a big focus on washing your hands and, and hygiene and not really mask wearing. But we had this really c- controlled environment in MIQ where we would have CCTV and able to understand sort of air pressure differences in rooms and ventilation in corridors and so on and understand that this was, you know, the time and place where somebody got infected with the virus and it had to be due to airborne transmission. And and so these 
studies have been really heavily cited around the world because we were able to, you know, link individual cases together and use genomics for contact tracing rather than sort of big picture surveillance that, you know, we are doing now. So now we're in that surveillance mode. ESR are continuing to sequence a proportion of hospitalised cases to check for the presence of new variants. These are things that we need to keep an eye on. We need to keep sequencing a certain proportion of, of cases to understand how this virus is changing and if any of those changes look concerning because they could cause the next wave. And that's another thing is, is animal reservoirs. We've seen in, internationally that there are certain animal species that can harbor the virus and it can then jump back to humans. And that's exactly what that happened with flu, right? One year you get a bird flu, uh, but it, it, there is still that chance that it becomes a human flu again. Um, so that's another point where we are really keen to, to keep that sort of what they call surveillance. Uh, it's not about people, but it's about the virus that we're surveilling to keep that going. I ask you what we've learned from the genome sequencing work during the early stages of this current pandemic that we can bring forward to the next challenge we might face. I think first and foremost is that what we've learned is that good public health advice is, is still worth its weight in gold and, and that the genomics has been able to back that up and actually support that and, and help people bring that message. It didn't necessarily... Uh, change those messages because those practices, they are they are old and well-established for a reason because they work. I think the other thing is that what we've seen is that genomics can be that real-time tool that actually informs decision-making. And I think that those countries that learn that lesson and that build their systems to be monitoring their wildlife, to be monitoring their populations for these infectious diseases in an ongoing real-time manner, will be better prepared for whatever comes next. Might that be another virus or might that be a multi-drug resistant bacteria or might that be something else? Um, if you have a way to keep tabs on it and be on top of it, you are better prepared for it. But let's rewind for a second. How did we get to here? To this incredible situation that allows the sampling of a patient and rapid sequencing of a whole virus genome to allow decisions to be made in real time. Well, you could trace it back to the early days of sequencing, starting with very simple viruses and bacteria that have small genomes. At that time, sequencing was laborious, time-consuming and costly. Because it is tricky to do. Yop thinks of it as making a puzzle. So you cut the DNA into pieces, you read those letters on those pieces, and then you put it back together. Historically, these pieces would have been very small. That was very good because we could read all of those tiny little pieces very quickly. But then there was a lot of time spent on figuring out how those pieces fit back together to make that picture. Because in the end, we need that digital picture to be able to compare it to, to other pictures that we might have taken of other species or of the same species, but in different environments. And some of the technological changes have actually meant that we can take larger puzzle pieces of that first picture, which makes it a lot easier to put back together. In the business, they refer to these as short reads or long reads. So reading around 500 letters at a time back in the day to over 100,000 letters at a time now. 
For reference, the human genome is about 6 billion letters in length. So high-quality, longer reads significantly reduces that putting-back-together phase. Something that undoubtedly pushed forward this tech advance was biology's then-moonshot, the Human Genome Project. It was a global scientific effort to put together the first sequence of the human genome, and it launched in 1990. We are here to celebrate the completion of the first survey of the entire human genome. Here's then-US President Bill Clinton in 2000 and an event celebrating the first draft sequence. Without a doubt, this is the most important, most wondrous map ever produced by humankind. In 2003, the project published the full sequence. Well, as close to full as they could with the tech available at the time, which was about 92%. The remaining 8% was real tricky, so they kind of just ignored it. And that's actually one of the things that has recently hit the news about uh, that it's now the first time that there is a complete human genome. Um, You might have thought that that happened 20 years ago, but that was actually, there were still some gaps in that. And it's only now 20 years later that we've uh, sort of started to fill those gaps. Associate Professor Karen Miga is a geneticist at the University of California and one of the co-leads of this effort to sequence the missing parts. In 2003, we definitely celebrated a finished genome. However, the public was unaware at the time that there were hundreds of millions of bases that we couldn't access at that point. I would argue perhaps some of the most biologically important parts of our genome um, were largely ignored for the past two decades. What that means is that we understand all the regions in between and some of those regions are quite important especially also the the center the middle of the molecule which we call the the centromere and that was previously something that we couldn't study and actually um, some of the groups that are working on that had to come up with new and um, more clever ways to actually compare those regions because there is uh, a lot of variability in those regions i think that that is important because there could be things hiding there that is relevant uh, for disease. But I think that the the thing that is happening, which is much more important, is that now that they have these technologies and they've sort of tried it on uh, on the gold standard genome, um, is that they're starting to do this for more diverse populations. Because the original human genome, for all intents and purposes, was a Western European uh, genome. There was no representation in there from all the other different continents and all the other different ethnicities that we know. And actually means that there's large parts of their genome that is not represented in the reference genome and therefore often overlooked. And some data even suggest that they might be receiving suboptimal diagnosis because it is not a complete picture of their genome that is being looked at. The term reference genome here means a representative example of the set of genes you would find in an individual of a species whether that is human, kakapo, or weta. But if you haven't sequenced a wide diversity of that species, you don't have the full set of genetic diversity. As we gather more sequences, more data, we can use it to inform clinical decisions. But we can only do that right if we know what the full diversity can be. That's what they're referring to as the the pan-genome project, where it's not about any single one genome, but it's about looking at a collection of genomes and making the comparisons to the one that is most relevant to you. Because as a, an indigenous uh, New Zealander, 
um, the Western European genome might not be the most relevant uh, for your health. The rapid advancement in genome sequencing technology has been kind of mind-blowing. About 20 years ago, some of the computers that were needed to to calculate the human genome were still the size of factory plants, right? They were massive devices. Where we nowadays, that we comfortably walk around with that sort of computational power in our pockets. The other thing is the actual cost of sequencing the molecules. These technologies have, have made rapid advancements. So where that first human genome took millions and millions of dollars, these days in clinical practice for somewhere between a thousand and two thousand New Zealand dollars, you will get your genome uh, done uh, for clinical decision making. Um, so that is a massive change in, in cost. Um, and then there's the speed of what we can do this at. A couple of months ago, there was a new record for the fastest human genome ever using these new technologies, which they completed from taking a sample from someone to getting a well, for all intents and purposes, complete genome with those larger jigsaw puzzles in about eight hours from from start to end. And that's really a game changer, right? Um, it really changes how we can think about using these technologies to actually treat people uh, based on that information. One of my colleagues, Miles Benton, recently actually joined one of these sequencing companies. Uh, one of the things that he was collaborating on with people is that um, there's a person on the table in the operating theater uh, with a brain tumor. And brain tumors are notoriously hard to treat because of the blood-brain barrier and getting drugs into the brains is, is very difficult. Um, so it's very important for them to know uh, what sort of tumor they're dealing with because uh, any decision they make, of course, has direct implications on that person's brain. So what they've actually done in Switzerland is, is, is they take that piece of the tumor that the physician is taking out, they put it onto one of these sequencers, and within an hour, they know if it's a very aggressive tumor or if it's a more benign tumor. And they feed that back to the physician who is still operating to either resect more of that material or to just leave it at that. And that's the kind of thing that is now becoming possible. And we're seeing that in, in infectious diseases, we're seeing that in cancer, but we're also seeing it in wildlife con conservation. Um, so, for example, there's a project uh, in which Otago University has been working on the Kakapo, where they've taken these sequencers onto uh, Fenuaho to help them actually sex the birds more quickly, because it can be very difficult to accurately determine uh, the sex of the birds. And for the breeding program, it's quite useful to know if you're dealing with a, a pair or not. Um, and also to, to start looking at, like, what can this mean if we do this closer to these animals? Does that mean there's fewer relocations? And of course, those relocations can be quite stressful for these animals. So you can see that across the spectrum of biology, people are starting to use these very disruptive technologies because it's become affordable and it's become portable in real time. So where to from here? We'll continue to get quicker and cheaper. Uh, that is a line that we have not plateaued yet. So one of the things that we've seen internationally is that it becomes more widely used. So you start using it for, for a wider variety of purposes. So not only if you have a cancer and need that very expensive drug, but also if you have a question about your, your ancestry or if you have a question about your reproductive choices. 
one of the things that we are focusing on within New Zealand is to actually move these technologies to a point where they can make a difference to people's lives. So in terms of treatment, historically, because of the expensive large machines you needed, there was some form of centralization where all of the samples would go to one large center, they would spit out the data and give it back. But especially in New Zealand, shipping can take a while. And especially with some of the COVID disruptions we've seen, it's, it can be a bit challenging. You have to, to wait for a couple of days. And if you're waiting for treatment decisions, those days can mean lives. They, they mean hospital beds. They mean all these other impacts on, on people's lives and, and on the economy. So if we can get the technology in a way that the local people, the local health provider, um, can stick a swab up your nose and see if you've got COVID, flu or something else within an hour or two, they can ring you back up and go like, yeah, no, it looks like you got flu. So don't take those antibiotics and just isolate and stay well. So what we're hoping is that by putting that closer to the patient, to the people, there's going to be a more direct impact. And the beauty of, of DNA data is that because it is that one uniform code um, across all living things, you can do start doing other things with it. So we, we've, we've heard from certain communities that want to use it to look at the health of their environment, maybe their rivers or their, uh, their forests, where if you can collect a sample, if you have that device sitting there for um, it's used in medical purposes, you can start to think about using it for other purposes as well, because the sequencing for all intents and purposes is the same. Um, so I really think that what we'll see happening, at least if, if we have our way, if you will, is that these technologies are going to become closer to people's daily lives, where you will encounter it not just in the medical system, but in different scenarios. It's an exciting prospect, with the potential to enhance healthcare and science in many areas. But, for some, also a daunting one. The technology has advanced so rapidly, some people fear that it has outpaced ethical, moral and legal considerations. Each country is grappling with the same questions. How you get consent, how and where you store genetic information, who has access and how it could, should and shouldn't be used. And how can we ensure that it helps to address inequities in healthcare rather than deepen them? Is Aotearoa ready for this? Next week, I speak to two researchers working on a project to explore how best to collect, safely keep and use genomic data here in Aotearoa. They're trying to build a platform and system that avoids harmful past mistakes. You know, in the dominant culture, we have Western science ethical frameworks taking centre stage and they've basically been shown to be, when it comes to working with Indigenous communities, not just in this country but in other countries as well, have, have repeatedly shown to be inadequate um, because of the, because they essentially generate negative experiences for the communities that the research ostensibly is meant to serve. Until then, big thanks to Dr. Gemma Geegan of the University of Otago and ESR and Dr. Jupp de Licht of ESR. This episode was produced by me, Claire Kincannon, with help from Liz Garten. Tim Watkin is executive producer of podcasts and series at RNZ. 
Thanks also to assistant producer Ellen Rikers for her work on the show and sound engineering was by William Saunders. You can find our website on rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld and you can find us on Twitter or Facebook at RNZ Science. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Claire Kincannon. Kia pai tō wiki.